What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Phil Borges. Phil is a photographer and filmmaker who, over the past 30 years, has done human rights work with indigenous communities around the world. He has hosted TV programs for the Discovery Channel and National Geographic, has produced six award-winning books, and his TED Talk on spirituality and psychosis has more than 1.2 million views. Phil is the producer and director of the new documentary film, Crazy Wise, Rethinking Madness, Psychosis, and Spirituality. So welcome to Madness Radio, Phil Borges. Hi, Will. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And just for full disclosure, I'm actually one of the guests in uh, who's interviewed in Crazy Wise. And it was really an honor to be part of this project. Um, a wonderful, wonderful film that I really recommend uh, people um, check out and get a chance to see whenever they can. And it's a focus on one of the things that I think is most important in understanding what we call psychosis or madness or mental illness, which is that there might be some kind of gift or something positive in the experience. This is a very deep mystery about uh, madness. And so it's great to have a documentary that focuses on this. Do you want to say a little bit about what gave you the idea to create the Crazy Wise film and how it kind of came into being? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I've always said that Crazy Wise came to me. I did not think um, about doing a film on mental health. Uh, I would have been completely surprised if somebody told me five, six years ago that I would be doing a film on mental health. But it came really through my work in these indigenous and tribal communities. And as, as you said in the introduction, I've been doing these human rights stories for Amnesty International, UN, um, various NGOs over the past 30 years. And by chance, I would meet um, the healers and visionaries in these communities. And after a while, I started seeking them out and, and interviewing them. And what, uh, Phil, what communities are we talking about? Is this primarily in, in Asia or is this also Latin America? Or where was it that you have traveled? It's been all over, really. Africa, Asia, North America, South America, the Arctic Circle, um, the Far East. I, I mean, I've been to, I haven't even counted them, but so many indigenous and tribal cultures in these parts of the world. Um, and so it's been very extensive. So you got interested in interviewing the healers and the, the shamans. They have different names in different communities. I guess the word shaman comes from uh, Siberia. Is that right? That's right. It, it comes from Siberia. But you're right. They're Dehars. I mean, the, the, the word in the Tibetans call the person who goes into trance-like states to to bring in new information or even act as a healer. They call him kutin. Uh, so our word shaman, uh, we apply to these people that typically go into altered states of consciousness to either act as a healer or a visionary for their community. And what were some of the things that you learned? Because I, I know that different communities have very particular approaches and different rituals and different myths and different cultures, but there's some very interesting commonalities 
between these different experiences. Do you tell us some of the things that you found or some of the people that you met or give us a, a sense of what it is that you uh, learned in, in some of these interviews? Yeah, well, there's so much. I mean, first of all, um, they, most of them go into altered states and trance-like states to do their work. And the way they induce those states is different from culture to culture. Many, many cultures use the drum and a drum beat to put themselves in that state. In the Amazon, they use psychoactive plants like ayahuasca or daktura. In Pakistan, for instance, for instance, in the um, Kalash community, this is a community that's right on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, an animistic community. And they actually burn juniper branches, slaughter an animal, pour the blood of the animal over the branches, and inhale the smoke to go into trance. So the trance induction seems to differ in different um, indigenous communities, but I, I can almost say 100% of the communities I've been in has somebody that plays this role. And so, and historically, we know that this has always been at the heart of the earliest human culture and in indigenous cultures around the world, this idea that altered states going out of losing touch with reality, because that's basically what an altered state is, actually is a source of wisdom and healing and um, and teaching. And so it's it's just compelling that we find this um, all over the world. And, and give us an example of someone that you interviewed or someone that you talked to and some of the things that they told you. Yeah, well, it started really, I was doing a project in Tibet on the Tibetan issue. And I was actually in India where the Dalai Lama lives. And I was invited to watch the Oracle of Tibet, the protector spirit of Tibet, um, be channeled by a young monk known as a Kutin. And a Kutin is someone who has that ability to go into these states and tune into other dimensions. And I um, was invited to watch him go into a trance-like state and talk in a very strange voice. And the monks gathered around him and started writing down everything he was saying. He was put into that trance by the, the drumming of the monks and the chanting of the monks. And once he was in that state, he as I said, he started talking in this very strange voice and then he totally collapsed and he had to be carried out of the room. And I was really sitting there wondering what was going on in terms of, was this some sort of a performance, a ritualistic performance or, uh, what, you know, what had happened. And two days after I saw that I was invited along with a friend of mine, Mick Brown, who writes for the Daily Telegraph in London, um, to go in and interview the Kutin. And, you know, I was kind of expecting this kind of a showman, you know, somebody that's used to performing. And, and it was a very humble, quiet guy. He was 30 years old at the time. I was expecting more of an actor. I thought that's what I thought I would find. And he talked about what happened to him was he started having personality changes. He was 
um, hearing voices. He, uh, you mean bef before he became identified as the, the Oracle, kind of his process of how he got um, his training or became recognized as the Oracle? Yeah, before he became identified. He was just a monk, a young monk in this monastery known as the Nechung Monastery. And it's a little monastery right next to the Dalai Lama's residence. And he started what he described as personality changes. He had mood swings. He would do, he had urgings to do these inappropriate things like jump up on stage when the Dalai Lama was speaking. Um, and he was very worried about it. He at one point thought he might be dying. Uh, he was hearing voices, having these intense dreams. And the older monks, as he was telling them about what was going on, started looking at him as if he might be a Kutin and, and started training him. And, you know, I really am sad that I never did get into what that training was exactly. But it went on for quite some time. They sent him to the Dalai Lama for an interview and the Dalai Lama asked him if he really wanted to be a Kutin because evidently they don't sometimes live as long as the other people. Um, and, uh, and he said, yes, he wanted to dedicate himself. And now he is the main Kutin at, who channels the state oracle, which is the protector spirit of the Tibetan people. And I met him while I was doing the film again, 20 years later, he's 53 years old now, uh, down in L.A. when he was setting up a Nechung monastery in L.A. Um, and he's happy and healthy and joking and, you know, he's like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> but uh, so that's how he was selected. The other thing that was interesting, uh, he didn't remember a thing he said when he was in that state. It's like he lost himself and, and tuned into another source of selfhood in a way and became this other entity. So what you're describing, you know, from a Western psychiatric standpoint would be classic symptoms of psychosis. I mean, dissociation, hearing voices, you know, he's worried, he's got these impulses to do these strange things like jump up on the stage. And then actually, it's also sort of a, at the same time, the sort of classic story of the shamanic initiation that someone goes through a, a, some sort of break with their ordinary personality has these strange experiences. And then the elders bring them into the tradition and recognize them for who who they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, that initiation is sometimes um, getting the person to learn to manage their sensitivity. They, they look at these sensitivities as, as a potential um, plus for the community that can be used, but they have to be learned to be managed. And, and taken control of in some way, not let the sensitivities completely overwhelm the person to where they can't function. And, and then just learning how to go into that trance and then come back from it. Potentially, you know, it sounds like he was really frightened and overwhelmed by what he was going through. And then the community says, well, okay, hey, this is a way of making meaning. This is a way of sort of understanding what you're going through, and then we're going to help you. 
and um, the possibility of an overwhelming experience that might be maybe he's too sensitive or he's got these uh, vulnerabilities or he's open, then he learns how to manage and how to navigate those things. He's given tools. And what, what doesn't happen, it sounds like, he's not told that, okay, this is a dangerous thing that's purely negative. We have to get rid of it or we have to even recover from it. But actually, these are kind of skills or these are a, it's a capacity or a kind of a gift that you have. And, um, and then there's a period of, of training and a period of, of recognition. And then, and then at the end of the process, there's a real honoring and a valuing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you very articulately laid down the whole thesis of crazy wise. (laughs) And and what's exactly. And what's so fascinating about this for me is that this isn't just, okay, we've found one tradition in one culture where this happens. This is a theme throughout all of human civilization. This is something that happens again and again and again in different cultures around the world that you have literally gone and visited and seen. And it's, it appears exactly the same consistency. It's present as part of human society in exactly the same way that madness or psychosis is also considered to be present and part of human society. But in some cultures, it's not seen as potentially having a gift. In other cultures, um, it is. But in our cultures, you know, we have this, this thing in human society, and then we respond to it very differently. And I'm curious, Phil, what, what about other people in the Tibetan culture who may hear voices or have overwhelming experiences or have strange things going on that might be called psychosis? Are they also recognized as, as Kutins or are some people not given that path or what happens, what happens to them? Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, there are other Kutins in Tibetan culture and it just so happens that the one I interviewed and spent time with was the main state oracle, uh, or, or I should say channels the main state oracle. But in terms of statistics, how many people are hearing voices within the com- Tibetan community, I have no idea. I can tell you this, the Tibetan culture is a very happy culture. And in spite of what they're facing, I'm always amazed by their, um, their lightness of heart in the face of what they've been through. I mean, when I'm in Dharamsala, India, for instance, where a lot of the refugees come out over the Himalayas and they have to sneak out and it's dangerous. It's 30 days of walking, mostly at night to avoid detection. You can't believe some of the things they've been through and the way they are. So to tell you how much mental health issues they have, I know they have them like any human society does. I have no idea. Is that known throughout Tibet that these are potentially gifts or that these are potentially a positive thing when someone has these experiences? It's accepted in many of the cultures I've been in, most of the cultures I've been in, that hearing voices, having visions are a positive thing. It's you're getting information that can be valuable to you. And I think it seems to me that in our culture where especially it's getting better now with the hearing voices movement, but in the past, hearing voices was an automatic, you know, you have a potential schizophrenia on the horizon. You were given a message that could be very frightening. And just having that frightening message given to you 
can change those voices into hostile voices or voices telling you to do dangerous or inappropriate things. So um, I think the state of mind of the person hearing the voices has a lot to do with what those voices are and how they behave. Yeah, the response that the culture has. I mean, so many people when they're in a, what could call a, a psychosis, if they're in like a manic state or what would be called a manic state, so many people I've talked to will say, you know, I was excited. I found the meaning of life. But then that sort of happy, exalted euphoria was met with fear from the people around me. And then things turned dark. So it was the context. It was the response that people got. And at the same time, I'm sure that there also are, are people who have just terrifying voices, experiences, and, and do have trauma-related struggles with visionary states that may not be positive. And was, that, was there anything that you found in your travels and your interviews that also looked at kind of the darker side of these experiences that maybe don't get channeled in a positive direction? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to many people with lived experience and... And all the shaman I interviewed, uh, most of them, they were terrified at points in their, uh, when it was initially coming upon them before they were identified. And so many thought they were dying. And part of the shamanic initiation is actually a death. It's a death of the old self and a, and, and a rebirth of a new self. And I, as I say, I wish I had spent more time in these interviews talking about the specific initiation and what was going on. But in general, the sense I got was, number one, they were asked to face their fears and not run from their fears and, and be with their fears. And the other thing that was really interesting, they got a peer. They got somebody... Uh, usually an older shaman who him or herself had been through one of these episodes and navigated it successfully. So they got an experienced traveler along those lines that that helped them. Again, we see a very instructive, um, very instructive parallel with what could happen in the U.S. or other countries that people who've been through it are the ones who then can turn around and teach and guide and help others rather than someone who's just gone off and studied it under a microscope and looked at it in textbooks. I mean, this is related to the idea of the, of the wounded healer. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's part of the process. When you come back into this new self, um, after the old self dies, the new self typically has an expanded sense of who they are. They, they take more responsibility for the community. And I found it very interesting that so many of them are, you know, if they were goat herders, they're still a goat herder. <laughs> they, they also now have this other job of being a healer or a visionary. If they had several kids, they still have to raise those kids. So, um, and uh, even to the point, one, one um, shaman in Mongolia by the name of Naman, she was 70 years old. So uh, I actually gave her like, I forget, 30 or $40 to stay next to her girl for three or four days. And she, in the process, she was seeing, she was a healer and she was seeing her clients or patients 
one after another. I mean, she was so busy. And people were coming out of the backwoods on horseback, and, and they were coming in during the day and at night. And I watched her give that money away to these people coming in. <laughs> it was quite the opposite of our system. And um, so they are usually having to, they do their work without compensation many times. Um, maybe the person that they that has come to them will give them a gift, but that is a gift for the spirits. Are there other examples of, of, of shamans that you met and some of the things that you saw and learned from them? Yeah, well, many. Um, there was, in Pakistan, there was, the shaman was John Dooley Khan. And again, this is in the Kalash group. There's about 3,000 Kalash remaining. They're completely surrounded by Islam on the Afghan side and on the Pakistan side of the border. And uh, just, uh, you know, I had to hike up. I, I brought my 16-year-old son uh, with me on this trip. I, it was right before 9-11, and I, I wanted a safe place to go. I was going to take him to Nepal, but there was a huge uh, uprising in Nepal at the time. So I decided I'd go to the Kalash instead of this other group I was going to. And we hiked um, with our guide probably almost a day to get up to John Dooley Khan's encampment. He was a goat herder. And he had to take care of his animals um, and protect them against the snow leopard, which is one of the smartest animals on the planet um, in terms of um, catching their prey. And uh, but I got there and he insisted on doing a ceremony for me. And I, I got to the point where I did not want the, the shaman to do a ceremony for me. I had a bad experience in Mongolia with that, where the shaman was doing uh, a ritual and going into trance, and he was in somebody else's tent that I happened to be staying in, and his spirits didn't like it, evidently. And he ended up throwing himself on the floor and rolling out of the tent, and it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't good. <laughs> and from that point on, I, I always would say, no, please don't. And so anyway, I was trying to talk John Dulicon out of doing this, this ceremony, but he said, oh, I have to do it. And my spirits are telling me, um, you've come so from such a long distance away. And so the next morning, he, and he was there with his sons. His sons started preparing the fire and they brought in the animal that they were going to sacrifice. And they started the juniper branches on fire. And um, I had done this long interview with him the day before. And he was very, very talkative, kept on chattering. You know, I, I wrote down several pages about his life and how he became the shaman. And anyway, I, so in the morning, they, they did the ritual. They started the fire. He breathed in the smoke. He went into trance. And after that, he didn't say anything. I never heard a word from him after that. So I, so I asked through my translator, I asked the sons if he had said anything at all. And he just said, they said, that he said that, my journey would, our journey, my son and I, would be difficult, but we would be safe. 
So I didn't think too much about it. But so anyway, um, I mean, this is just one of those curious coincidences. We left his camp the next day and walked back down the mountain. And my son picked up a bug up there. And so he had dysentery, couldn't keep anything down. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I'd hired this Jeep driver and he was taking us further into the Hindu Kush as we were going to make this huge loop, come down the Karakoram Highway back into Islamabad. And as we were driving along, I was expecting Dax to get better, but he just kept getting worse. And it went on for about four days. And I was literally panicked. I mean, I thought I was going to lose my son. Anyway, um, so we're driving along, and he, he's getting so weak he can't even sit up in the, in the Jeep. And so... I, I remember stopping. We just passed a couple of little shacks that were on the hillside. And um, I stopped the Jeep driver. I took Dax and put him under a tree. And I went back to those little shacks and I banged on the door, seeing if I could get anything, you know, that might maybe an herbal remedy or something to, to help him. And a doctor <laughs> answered the door. And who was this doctor from Islamabad who was visiting his mom for the weekend. And he happened to have a bag of saline and glucose and um, with a hydration bag. And we rehydrated him and he was fine. <laughs> it was like, I, I, so, you know, those things I could say, well, you know, total coincidence but I've had a couple of those incidences like that that make me stop and think, wow, I wonder, do they step out of time or what, you know, what is the source of their knowledge or power? Just in the middle of nowhere, you just happen to knock on the door and then there's this doctor that's there that has exactly what your son needs and maybe even saves your saves your son life, son's life. And then the, the shaman who had just met kind of, it seems, just predicted the whole thing was going to go this way. In a way, yeah. I mean, it, it was so bizarre, you know, just, yeah, finding a doctor there. I, I wish I had a picture of these shacks to show you. It, it was literally a shack. It wasn't, you wouldn't expect. So here's a guy literally in a white coat. <laughs> opening the door as I pound on it. It was, <laughs> it was like coming out of a dream or something. Phil, one of the things that um, seems to also be true about shamanism around the world is there is this kind of performance quality that part of the ritual is the creation of a certain atmosphere and a certain belief because that's what's mobilized is the belief system. And is that something that you you encountered and, then, and saw? What, what are your thoughts about kind of the the question of the, the sort of magician's sleight of hand side to shamanism. Right. You know, I, I haven't uh, witnessed that in person, but certainly I've heard about it, especially in the Philippines. And I know there is a lot of um, placebo effect in the healing process. In our healing process here in the West, we have a lot of placebo effect, um, which is just the belief that something is being done to help you will actually help you get better. That is a very powerful force. And it's a force that um, 
needs to be thought of and reckoned with. And that is what one of the big messages is in this film is the paradigm by which we describe and define and treat quote unquote mental illness has a very negative placebo effect. If you're telling somebody, and most of these psychotic breaks, quote unquote, happen to people under 24 years of age. Half of them happen to people in their adolescence. And if you tell somebody that's young and has left consensus reality for whatever reason, that they have a disease of their brain or a chemical imbalance, that can't be cured, that has a very negative, uh, that causes a lot of fear, has a very negative placebo effect. And if you take on top of that and give them a diagnostic label that is stigmatized, it shames them and isolates them. And fear and isolation together will disempower the person. That's one of the worst things you could do for mental health. So, um, yes, the shaman does use placebo, but they use it wisely. They use it consciously to help the person get well. And when, when did you decide to make Crazy Wise? How did you um, come to the inspiration to make this documentary, documentary film about shamanism and psychosis? It was about five years ago, uh, a neighbor of mine who um, came over to visit me one evening and she brought her daughter and I had done an interview with her daughter. Her daughter was an aspiring photographer going to NYU and she wanted to bring her daughter over to thank me. And so after dinner, um, Deborah asked me if, if she... Would, she would love to do a film with me sometime. And I, and I was busy, you know, going back and forth to these communities that I was doing my work in. And I said, what would you want to do a film on? And we decided, well, maybe let's do a little film on meditation. So I said, okay, when I'm back in town, if you start li lining up people who meditate, um, we can make a little short on meditation, mindfulness, what it does, what it doesn't do. I'd been meditating for a couple of years and I thought that'd be an interesting way. I, I love to do projects around things I'm curious about. So I still had a curiosity about it because I was, I was actually doing it. And one of the people she sent me and one of the first, it was, I think she sent me three and I did three interviews one evening. This one was Adam who became the main subject in our film. And he had a history of a psychotic break when he was 20, put on meds for four years where he had very serious side effects from these medications to the tune he was being treated for the side effects. And at one point he was taking 15 pills a day. And the reason she selected him is he was a meditator. And his story was he had cut off his meds, and and I want to repeat, <laughs> he had just gone cold turkey on his meds. But that's, as you know, Will, that's not, a very dangerous, not yeah. advisable at all. There's heavy withdrawal issues around medications. And, but he went off them all at once and did a very severe meditation retreat called a Vipassana, which is 10 days of silent meditation 
10 hours a day. And he came out of that somewhat um, stabilized and he was able to get a job. So when I met him, he was working. He seemed like a normal, you know, 26 year old at that point. And I thought, well, this would be kind of an interesting story to tell. Let's instead of interviewing a whole series of people, let's just follow him for a while. And four months into following him, he went back to do another Vipassana meditation retreat and childhood memories started coming up as they were before. But this time it was much more severe. He was having a lot of problems with it. And he went to the leaders of the retreat and told them about it. And they didn't know how to handle it. They didn't have they weren't prepared to handle that type of thing. And they suggested he go home. And so he went home from that. Evidently, the images that came up in his mind had to do with the molestation that happened when he was very young with his granddad. And he told his parents about it. And his parents said, you know, you know, you've been crazy for a long time. And this is just another manifestation of that. They didn't believe him. And so he, we watched him. He was alienated from the thing that really was helping him, the, the, the meditation retreats, and his family at the same time. Was he, uh, was, so he was not really given any help by the retreats. Was he allowed to come back or was he invited to be part of that community? Because he had, it sounds like he had really relied on that as part of his healing process. No, they just sent him home. And yeah, but being alienated, the point I wanted to make, being alienated from both that retreat and, and his family had devastating consequences for him. I, we watched him fall apart literally within weeks after that. Lost his job, lost his house, became homeless, living in a car. Um, voices started getting angry and mean and and... Um, this was a very, Adam, to give you some background on Adam, most popular kid in high school, um, handsome, gifted athletically, he could do anything, very charismatic. It, we watched him go down to a point where he had absolutely no confidence in himself. Um, actually told me at one point when he was living in Hawaii, that he was trying to get a job of watering somebody's lawn and he didn't have the confidence to do that. He was afraid he would screw it up. And it, 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 was, it was dramatic. So, so it's so important about the, the key role of support. I mean, here he was, he, he came off of his medications, but he has a good relation with his family. He's got this solid relationship with the meditation community. And then, because when things got hard, and he got started to get overwhelmed with these memories or feelings and experiences around the molestation. Now he's cut off from his family and cut off from the meditation community, and there's no support there. And that, it seems like that's really the, the turning point for him, is that he started to go down, down from there. Yeah. Yeah. It was dramatic. <laughs> right. So that, was, so that was a real turning point. And then the story in the film is really about how Adam doesn't get the kinds of support that he really needed to get. And then what might we do as a society to rethink 
what we call mental illness. So we do give people support that they need. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's one of the big messages in our film, along with we need a shift in the paradigm is we need to start building communities that that understand and and can support people that go into these extreme states because really they're just extreme states of what we all go through. We all get depressed. We all get anxiety. I mean, it's a human condition and yes, sometimes it can get to the level where it gets so extreme that, um, dangerous things start to happen. But people need, people need community. They need support. They need positive expectation and connection and, and listening and it's just it's tragic that you know adam didn't didn't get that and how where what happened in his journey where where did he sort of go with, with this because it was very hard for him well luckily he he fell in with this um there's a coffee house bookstore called soul food books in redmond washington home of microsoft that's where he lives uh, and he started hanging out there and there was just a group of artists uh, that were very understanding. Many of them had had issues and he found a whole family there. So as he said, when he lost his family, he found this whole new family. And without that, I think Adam wouldn't be alive today. Seriously, uh, that that gave him um, a community that he could be around and feel um, not so isolated and othered. The only negative thing about the community, they were all pretty heavily self-medicating. He fell into this group and they were all smoking pot all day long and, and the drugs started getting heavier and a real couple of bad incidents happened. So um, uh, he didn't have the perfect community, but at least he had a community. And it wasn't the kind of, you know, pseudo community that sometimes the mental health system offers like, oh, you can have your community, but you're going to be at this mental health center. You're going to be with other mental patients. You're going to be, you know, uh, excluded and separated and sort of segregated from the rest of society in this milieu therapeutic household or something. You know, he's working, he's part of the part of the uh, the community there. He's been included, which I think is really crucial. That was really crucial for me. When I first came out of the hospital and years later, I tried to go back to school, I didn't have that community. And so, you know, just the stress of it, it just fell apart. And then finally, I did start to get friends and did start to get connections and did have some foothold in sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the social fabric of society I had reconnected with. And that was what allowed me to move forward. But I, I couldn't do it by just cutting off my past and acting like it didn't happen and then leaving that out of the equation of how do I, I had to really meet people who could really meet me there and who could really understand and, and I could talk to about what I had been through. And I think a lot of people do find that in the artist community. They find it among musicians. They find it among the outsiders and the rebels and the people at the fringes because people kind of get it that we live in a crazy society and we kind of have to take take care of each other. And there's a lot of sensitive people and gifted and talented people who fit right in in the musician scene and the arts scene. So it sounds like that was a big part of what really helped Adam. was. That's right. Exactly. 
And yeah, it was, that was very, very helpful to him. And especially having peers, having people who had gone through the same thing he had gone through that he could relate to and share um, ideas about it. So the peer movement to me is one of the most hopeful signs on the horizon for our society um, that we're starting to use these individuals and have accreditation programs for them in various states now that have all this experience that can serve. And they're more than we get calls all the time with people with lived experience that say, can I speak with Adam? Can I help him? You know, we, almost daily. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people out there that want to help and, and, understand a lot more than somebody that has just gone to school and learned how to categorize these um, various forms of abnormal experiences, quote unquote. Phil, so you're you're in a unique position because you've studied uh, shamanism and met people and, and interviewed and filmed and photographed all over the world, so many different indigenous communities that you've traveled to, and you've also done this incredible research and connected with all these people and interviewed them in the mental health system. All these different professionals are interviewed in the Crazy Wise film. So you're in really a unique position to answer or at least address this question. What, what do you think is going on here? What do you think is really going on with what gets called psychosis and what seem to be these spiritual components to it. What's your best sense of that? Well, you know, when I was younger, they used to call some of these episodes identity crises, um, sometimes nervous breakdowns. Uh, and, but I think identity crisis really rings true to me in a way. It seems like that we all carry this vision of who we think we are. Um, Einstein had things to say about that, that the, the self that we think is separate from the rest of the universe is actually this delusion of our consciousness or an illusion of our consciousness. And I think there's truth to that, that what we have learned through our um, culture, through our families growing up, our language, I, me, mine, um, separates us from the whole. And when somebody has a break, somehow that narrative sense of self, that how we believe what we are, that's separate from, I'm separate from you, Will, you're separate from me, um, we're separate from the rest, that that seems to break down in these crises. And the ego self gets more or less disempowered, and that allows a greater sense of self to emerge and, and, and it can be totally overwhelming and frightening. But in the beginning, like Adams said, in the beginning of his, he said, when it first happened, it was very fun and exciting. It was the first time I felt at one with the universe. Um, I felt what, what that was me and I was it. Um, so that unity experience that the sages all talk about seems to be a part of that process. And to recognize that these breaks are a process. They're not a disease. They're a process. And if we understand the process and can work with it and find meaning within it and purpose within it, 
that would go a long way to helping these situations out. So to me, there's a guy I just met that has written a book called um, The Man Who Wasn't There. I think that's the title. But anyway, it's, it's all about these various diseases that um, attack our sense of self. All the way from somebody that loses an arm and they have the sense of a phantom limb to people that have the opposite. There are people that um, feel their arm or one of their limbs are not theirs and they demand to have them amputated. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I'd never heard of it before. But also there's, he, he investigates all these medical conditions like ecstatic epilepsies that are just these flashes. They're essentially aha experiences where you tune into the infinite and you get this sense of peace and bliss for a moment. So that's, I think that process is, is what's going on that. And in the shamanic world, they can see that breakdown happening of the individual um, older self or former self, and they nurture that person into this expanded sense of self, which carries a lot more compassion, empathy, and allows them to do their work as healers, usually with no compensation. I think this is really at the heart of it, Phil, and you know, you're describing something that's really natural. It's a natural process. It's a transition from one identity to another. And these are cultures and um, indigenous peoples who have lived in close harmony, balance, connection with nature for so many thousands of years that these are traditions that come through that really are part of nature. So when there's a process of transitioning someone from their ordinary identity to a shamanic identity, and we see that process throughout all these different cultures around the world, we have to get a clue that this is something that's very natural that these cultures understand as part of of the human condition and that we can learn from that. And I think for all of us, we all go through this transition from adolescence to adulthood. And so much of what I see and why I think that the so-called first episode often happens in 24, 25, that age, I see it as really part of the of a crisis that happens in the transition from adult uh, adolescence to adulthood. But for some people, it's just a much more extreme transition. It's a real uh, break needs to take place because there's a dramatic transition. And what happens is that the old identity stops serving, and then the person is trying to find a new identity. There's a transition, but it becomes very, very difficult to do that without support. And throughout culture, there are rites of passage that going from an adolescence to adulthood, having one role as a child, and now you have a role as an adult among equals, that is marked by a dramatic ritual, that there's a rite of passage, there's an ordeal, there's an initiation. And so I, I think what's going on with shamanism is that there's also this initiation, this rite of passage, but it's a much more dramatic shift of identity because the person is not just contacting the role of being an adult in the society, they're contacting the role of being a healer and a, 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 a spiritual leader and someone who can journey to other realms and use altered states, but it's still a transition to an adulthood role in the society. And in, and we have a big problem in general in the West that we don't recognize these natural passages and we don't have this rite of passage. And so we see it like young people that get 
connected to addiction or they get really lost in so many different ways. And if there was just some holding from the society, the elders, the community, the peers who've been through it, if they could just hold them and let them make it through that transition, things would be so much better for all of us. And maybe the problem that you're addressing with Crazy Wise is sort of a, a social problem in general. We need to come back to these ancient ways of dealing with these timeless human problems because we haven't got it figured out. We have all the technology, we have all the advances, we have all the different things that tell us this is an advanced civilization, but in a lot of ways it's it's not. These other cultures, these indigenous ways are much more advanced and much more civilized than what it is that we're trying to do. Yeah, but we also have to remember, Will, that we'll never be living in these these cultures that uh, have this wisdom. Uh, the young person today, in in these traditional cultures, they come out with about four or five choices of what they're going to be in that transition. In our society, there are thousands of choices, and it's very competitive uh, to fit into those choices. And many of the values are not the best values in terms of, you know, it's we value we value the individual. We value individual accomplishment, celebrity, um, the self-made man, quote unquote. And those are all very um, separating values. And to me, spirituality is always a loaded term. To me, it means it's a path towards connection. The more connected you are to the all that is, to the environment, to the people around you, the more spiritual you become. Any path that takes you in that direction towards connection is a spiritual path. Anything that takes you in the opposite direction to isolation and individualism is, is less so. And so we have to recognize, yeah, we're living in a very different environment. We will never be able to live as indigenous people live. And and I also want to make the point that shamanism is not the answer. I'm not saying we should all go to a shaman to get, fix our mental health issues, but there are definite things that we can learn from what that process is that we can apply to this culture. And and that's that's what I'm trying to get across with well, crazy I think, wise. I, I think that's one of the things that's so difficult to in talking about spirituality and indigenous cultures and, and shamanism is that you know, we're caught between either seeing it as just obsolete in the past and oh this is not something that has anything to offer. We're caught between that and then romanticizing it and saying, This is the answer, we should do this and and I think that the importance of your film is that you're starting to say, look, we can't just be caught between these two different perspectives. We really need to come to grapple with this. How do we learn from what's valuable and useful from the past and from these ancient traditions and also to recognize that we shouldn't romanticize it. There are many things in these cultures that we don't want to necessarily you know, gloss over as being positive and good because they're not. There are things that are very negative in, in many cultures, in all cultures, because all cultures have humans and we all have this negative dark side. So how do we have a conversation that can draw on what we can learn from shamanic and indigenous cultures and also meet um, what we can learn from our own culture and what is valuable and positive in our own technological, industrial way of, of looking at things and then move forward in a new direction. But that, I think, is the heart of it, is that you're 
film is calling for a new paradigm, a new way of thinking. And that's really what we need to do is we need to get out of this old uh, framework and recognize that the mental health system, as we have it now, isn't producing the kind of recovery and the kind of outcomes that we, we know is possible. Phil, we're just about out of time with the interview. Give people contact information. How can they find out more about the film? How can they see it? How can they uh, you know, maybe host a showing in their community? How do they find out more? Yeah, if you want to find out more about the film, it's at crazywisefilm.com. That's crazyandwisefilm.com. And there you can either download the film and, and, and rent it or you can get a DVD. But what we're really um, pushing and what I've seen happen with this film that has really excited me is to host a community screening and in a small gathering of, say, 30 people, show the film. And the film raises all these questions and it's talking about it. I've seen so many people actually come out from the shadows of their diagnosis and start talking about what happened to them, their experience. And, and I think that would help things uh, as much as anything. All these people who have been shamed and, and, and not told anybody about what had happened to them for fear of being labeled and thought of as crazy. Um, the more people that come out and show that this is a normal human process, that it can happen to any of us, it happens to um, many people, that will help us overcome the stigma and the isolation that that has um, driven so much of the ill effects of of these processes. And it's a very thoughtful film. You you don't ever fall into the idea that okay, medications are always bad, or you know the the system is completely wrong. There's much more of of a nuanced, subtle um, conversation that we need to have, and I think that the film very much contributes to that. Yeah, definitely. I I always preface my remarks after the film. This is not an anti-medication or an anti-psychiatry film. This is um, not that at all. Medications have helped many people. They have a place. Um, Yes, they're being way over-prescribed, especially in kids. Um, We are over-diagnosing. We're um, pathologizing a lot of human experience. It shouldn't be. But um, it's not to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Well, after all, we are valuing altered states, and medications are a form of altered state in a sense. So it's sort of like that's part of the whole menu, at least that's how I I see it, is that, you know, there's a place for the pharmaceutical altered states as well, in a sense, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you haven't slept for two weeks, you need something to help you sleep. The the thing about the medications is that it, we all want a quick fix. We all want something that can help us right now. And and the problem is there's never going to be a very quick fix. It, you you have to work on the culture. You have to work on yourself. And the problem with medications, it has muscled out the psychological, the social, the spiritual and the biological foundations of good mental health. 
you know mm-hmm. yeah and i think it i think that the idea of the quick fix also obscures this process that you're pointing to of the transition in identity that we sometimes so hold on to our old identity that we don't you know give a thought to the idea of well maybe this process i'm going to is pointing me in a new direction maybe i don't necessarily just want to take medications to get back the way i was or try and get back the way i was maybe i need to see where this process might be leading me in terms of some kind of real change or, or transformation. Yes. I, I think you said it so well in one of your interviews I, I heard about this is a life-changing experience. And there's fear with life changes. And, uh, and you can get caught up in those fears. But yes, um, having support during a life-changing experience is, is so important. Phil Borges, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. Hope to see you soon. You've been listening to an interview with Phil Borges. He is a photographer and filmmaker who, for the past 30 years, has worked for human rights in indigenous communities around the world. He has hosted TV programs for the Discovery Channel and National Geographic and has produced six award-winning books, and his TED Talk on spirituality and psychosis has more than 1.2 million views. Phil is the producer and director of the new documentary film, Crazy Wise, Rethinking Madness, Psychosis, and Spirituality. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by The Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. Mm-hmm.